Welcome to the IP Physics Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there are sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship and you can get all the details. And if you got something cool working with V6, we definitely want to hear about it. So come join us on the V6 Buzz. We can uh, we can gab all about IPv6. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffeen and Scott Hogan. Today, we're going to talk about Matt. Not like we haven't beaten that to death many times before, but we're going to talk about it very specifically in sort of a pro-con sort of discussion format, because a lot of folks ask us like, you know, do you even need V6 if we have NAT working properly with V4 or does NAT exist within IPv6 even? (laughs) And all these sorts of generic sort of like, these are, these are constructs that we're super familiar with in IPv4 and uh, rightfully so we sort of wonder about like, do they translate to, to V6 or do they even you know, supersede our need to, to be moving to V6 because, you know, NAT can solve all the things. And for many folks that work on the internet and maybe not don't have the opportunity to work on the internet at scale, like working for a service provider or working for a major cloud provider, um, you know, it seems like the narrow scope of your address requirements are or maybe through a keyhole lens. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a fair analogy of like, you've, you've got a narrow scope of what you need to solve for and for what you need to solve for, IPv4 is more than sufficient, right? In terms of in terms of looking through that, and especially because of NAT providing one of the scaling tools that you can use to to sort of help you participate in the internet without having to worry about necessarily um, you know a, a large set of of v four addresses that may be required for you to operate and interact on the internet at scale. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe the first pro is that NAT helps you participate on the internet. It helped the internet scale certainly in the mm-hmm. early days. And continues to do so. Like it does a great job even today mm-hmm. of of allowing exactly that, which is I've got a small business. I need to be able to, you know, be able to participate on the internet to be able to do things. Um, but I don't I don't want to go out and buy some crazy number of IPv4 addresses, even if my service providers are going to give them to me. So I will use Yat, uh, NAT in some capacity to be able to participate on the internet. And I may even do carrier grade NAT or NATing twice, right? Um, to get out to the internet. I don't know. What do you guys think? Is it something that we sort of solve, help solve scale the internet? Yeah, definitely. Because what we're talking about is, you know, network address translation and a a one-to-many NAT or a a many-to-one NAT, you know, where you're doing overloading and people call it port address translation. Um, But yeah, you're using only a single public address for many you know, clients using private address internally and it conserves your address, your public address space, yet allows those devices to access the internet. The trade-off is you have a device in the middle that has to maintain state of and map the port addresses for the source address or the source port number to the clients that are behind. Uh, right. And so you need a sufficiently large pool of public address space and port space for the number of clients that are passing through that device. And so scale is an issue, but you have to buy that thing that does that function. 
and I think this is really where you need to make the critical distinction between different market sectors and how they use NAT, because I think sort of we're I think we're mm-hmm. sort of talking about it generally in the way that enterprises think of it, and uh, and scale doesn't really enter the picture all that often. I mean, because you can mm-hmm. you can overload a, a heck of a lot of addresses behind one address uh, in the enterprise space, and everything still mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. But this was uh, this was definitely a key pain point. You know, years back uh, when service providers were beginning to adopt IPv6 and carriers and ISPs and, you know, with home users and mobile devices where uh, you needed to have uh, potentially everybody had to be connected and have a unique address. But unfortunately, you didn't necessarily have an economically scalable way of providing those public IP addresses. And so then, you know, carrier grade NAT or large scale NAT entered the picture. And uh, and that was that was sort of the initial struggle between the you know do we have a strong enough business case here to adopt IPv6 to make this carrier grade NAT problem go away because the scale issue you're talking about uh, impacted them greatly in in terms of having to have you know big ugly boxes that were able to to do that that level of you know translation uh, for you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, you know, versus, mm-hmm. you know, just a few folks working in an office, a corporate office somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I yeah. think the, the way that service providers solve that, right, you know, and this is this this was a struggle, at least for a period of time, but I think pretty much it's been definitively resolved at this point. Nat, Nat went away in that space and, and IPv6 mm-hmm. got adopted. And, and, and mm-hmm. for, for the question of, you know, do we really need NAT? Do we really need IPv6 because we have NAT? Well, the answer for the service providers was a definitive, absolutely, we need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was difficult for them to do lawful intercept, uh, you know, meet, you know, legal requirements of local law enforcement, and then deal, you know, then the CGN devices were having to deal with things like address plus port or port control protocol or other methods. <laughs> Yeah, and they scale and scale, and so when you have a hundred thousand subscribers behind a NAT, all generating it, hundreds of TCP connections per second, they are all fighting for that TCP port space, and you're really not fighting necessarily for bandwidth; you're fighting for TCP port space and connections, mm-hmm. and connections per second uh, that that device could handle, and uh, you rotate through that port space pretty fast based on the pool of public addresses you have. And so well, I think, I think just as importantly for high availability, then you're running two of them. Right. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then unlike uh, maybe a small branch office or even a reasonably sized branch office that the firewall fails and then reboots the rest of the internet doesn't notice. And the rest of your competition doesn't may or may not notice, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, if you're a service provider and you have an entire neighborhood or entire city go out because mm-hmm that's large scale NAT device is mm-hmm. having issues that day, right? It's not like, it's not like people aren't going to notice that they can't mm-hmm. connect to the internet and, and you're going to end yeah. up with, a, with a, even, even though your, your backbone or your transport could be fine. It's just these end state devices that are providing that to be able to yeah. get, get people connected could be problematic. Right. Yeah. And Ed, you talked about, you know, double natting, you're doing NAT 444, <laughs> right. You're natting, Four four at your CPE device at your home, and then yep. your, your the net service provider is natting again at their internet gateway, and so when you do double nat, then you have problems, side effects like problems with geolocation or fraud forensics and reputation filtering. Certain applications may work fine with one nat, but maybe not two. Certainly, mm-hmm. anything that 
is embedded in an address, a V4 address in the payload or, or something like that breaks or oh, needs to be fixed up by an application layer gateway. And there was address space that was specifically assigned for service providers to use for this purpose, mm-hmm. the, the, the 100.64, that it seems like the cloud providers have, have lommed onto to tell everyone to go ahead and build VPCs with, yeah. with these networks, which is problematic, which is actually problematic because that, 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 as you mentioned, Scott, with that portion of address space, you could actually run into problems depending on what you're doing that conflict with what that double NAT configuration yeah, is actually. not what it was meant to do. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. not what it was meant to use, be used for. Right. But, you know, because it was chosen that both through, I guess, IN and ITF not to allocate any more reserved address space, you know, what, you know, what were folks supposed to do in terms of you know, mm-hmm. public cloud providing? And and so, and, and we've already seen past behavior of people squatting on public address space mm-hmm. inappropriately. Like, you know, the, I guess the notorious one was like uh, Cisco's wireless LAN controller, like 1.1.1.1, right? Yeah. <laughs> All their documentation, everything else, which is now part of Cloudflare's, you know, recovery, mm-hmm. you know, name server, mm-hmm. public name server. So, so you have to, it, I think it's, it becomes problematic in, in many ways to sort of, you know, to, to see that. But I, I do think in the early days, that really did help with scaling yeah. out the internet in general, just to, res- to slow or, or, stem the tide of how quickly we were consuming public v4 address space because if we had continued to do it the rate we i i don't even know if v6 would have launched oh, all that easily, well. yeah we would have yeah if there was if it wasn't for nat we couldn't have scaled the internet and we would have run out of address space in 97 or something yeah it was like 97 98 or something like that or 99 and you know literally the early portions of the draft were in the draft IPv- for yeah IP and g wasn't ready yes ng wasn't ready then so <laughs> right. so so that helped v6 gain a maturity for sure mm-hmm. in terms of the capabilities yeah. and what it would do a nice so. long runway for v6 arguably yeah or maybe maybe that was to its detriment i mean depends on you know fast innovation might have been might have been better for v6 in some ways depends on which day you ask us right um so <laughs> but, but one one thing uh, with the initial rollout of v6 in terms of you know back in the day when when nat was sort of appearing on the scene to to potentially save the day for v4 run out uh there was always the the argument around v6 you could say well from a practical operational standpoint it's preventing this bad thing from happening but what are the good things that it's providing and, and of course mm-hmm. Uh, the, the end-to-end model is often referenced in, in, mm-hmm. in answer to that question. Restoring the end-to-end model of the internet where one device as an endpoint on the internet can communicate directly uh, to another device without having these you know, intervening NAT gateways, as you suggested, you know, NAT44 mm-hmm. or NAT4444 or NAT44444. Oh wait, that last four was just a typo, but um, but I, I, you know, just with with the end-to-end model, do do we do, are we any closer to that, or or is that do even, even something? Prescribe? That, do we yeah, need do it? We, do we need it? What is that, and and is it something that that's worth talking about in this context? Yeah, because we handle the address changing, the source address changing in transit by using protocols that are accepting of that. You know, and we use HTTP, HTTPS, and as long as the server isn't too picky that it's talking to <laughs> about the source address of who's making a connection to it, it it probably works. So, client server type web based communications probably works fine, but maybe a NAT prevents maybe client to client or peer to peer communications. But then we also have dealt with those types of protocols like voice over IP protocols like SIP. 
with stun and turn and ice, you know, we've adapted the protocols to deal with the fact that the source address changes um, and to share in an Ataband way the address that we intend to use and what it really is on the inside, you know. So we have fixed up our protocols in other ways to deal with NAT. Hasn't prevented you from doing peer-to-peer file sharing. Right. It just it just accommodates for the fact that NAT may be occurring as part of that and mm-hmm. and has ways to sort of, you know, open up connection session state information across a, a NAT-related device, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's different ways of signaling to basically indicate what needs to happen to in order to build the right sort of packet payload to get from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's but necessarily... if you... But the other side of the coin is if you were running a server and you were an online dot-com retailer and you were doing fraud prevention, you know, fraudulent credit card purchases, and you wanted to track back the source, the client IP address, if you did have... If you could be guaranteed there was no NAT in the transmission path, then you would have assurances that the address that was connecting to you was authentic and legitimate and hadn't been modified in transit. Then you might give you an advantage in fraud protection, fraud detection, maybe. Yeah, there's definitely that as a as a plus side. I mean, the it's I, I think the end to end principle. Like we're, we've moved so far away from it, it feels very foreign to tr- be trying to move so close back to it, right? I guess, I mean, like it's, I, I think there's definitely advantages of moving away from too many layers of NAT as mm-hmm. it would be, NAT 444, 4444, you know, like getting too down the rabbit hole of both, you know, source and destination route uh, NAT configurations that could really make things, you know, difficult. Yeah. But, I think a singular end-to-end principle, I don't know if everyone's bought into that yet, just from a security standpoint and how you're exposed on the internet and, and things of that nature that that enter into that whole conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, at every, at every NAT point, you create a, a boundary between two address spaces. Right. And so it creates kind of a bubble. And within that bubble between two NATs, or between clients and their first top NAT, the first NAT they might encounter, they can do peer-to-peer. They have, uh, there's no modification of the address when they talk to each other within that bubble. And so, you know, NAT creates these little bubbles where the addresses are unique within that realm, within that routing domain or between those NATs, the address is unique and and peer-to-peer is allowed to operate there. And plus we do peer-to-peer within the home or within the enterprise. And that can certainly be done because there's no natting done inside the core of that. It's right. done at the edge. It's done at the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense to me. And then it still allows for whatever managing devices there to determine whether an end to end communication might be appropriate. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. So like a firewall saying like, yeah, um, the, the service is open for that. Um, I don't have to change the address in order to be able to allow the, you know, stateful firewall to permit that traffic through. Um, and so you still get the advantage of like the end to end exposed address, but you still get the security principles that you uh, are sort of used to at those edge boundaries where we often deploy NAT because it's a stateful mm-hmm. requirement with a mm-hmm. stateful firewall. So they often go hand in hand with each other, mm-hmm. which is what causes a lot of confusion about what's NAT performing versus what a stateful packet inspection device is performing. Yeah. 
but uh, but to your point, Scott, I think that that sort of complements what what you were making there in terms of in terms of that and then sort of principle. Yeah, we talked about that in our in our firewall show where we talked yeah. about firewalls and that IPv6 firewalls, while they may not do NAT, they definitely do the stateful packet inspection. They must do that. Right. And we, that is the function that provides security. Yes, 100%. Or at least you hope that they provide the stateful packet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, yes. they're not a very good firewall. That's the hope. Well, and then I guess, I guess we need to address the uh, contradiction maybe in the initial question around whether you know IPv6 or NAT, uh, as if right. those two exist uh, completely independently of each other. Mm -hmm. And when the reality mm -hmm. is, of course, that we have IPv6 NAT, we have NAT and IPv6, <laughs> and right. uh, and they're you know horror of horrors. They're actual use cases for it where it solves very specific problems architecturally mm -hmm. and otherwise operationally. And I guess we should probably talk through those a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess in, in terms of quick uh, sort of discussions um, for those that have followed and followed the show for a while, we talked about uh, the, some of the problems of whether you have provider independent or provider assigned address spaces. And if you have provider assigned, you might have two providers that you're trying to move traffic through for high availability reasons. And uh, so you're going to have to translate from one to the other, depending on which, you know, sourcing interface you generated traffic from versus if you have PI or provider independent, that's your own address space, then, you know, you might end up in the case where you want to do local internet hop off, mm -hmm. in which case, if you're not doing BGP, you might have to translate that. Maybe you're using SD-WAN as an overlay so you can run PI space at your remote office location so your firewall rules are really simple. But you want to do a local internet hop-off, you might have to use something like you know MPTV6 network prefix translation, which is basically NAT, effectively NAT, um, to be able to get that traffic outbound. So those are the quick use cases, top of my head. <laughs> I don't tell mm -hmm. if that's what you were thinking of covering. It is probably important to point out with MPTV6 that it's it's stateless as compared with other forms of NAT where there's actually yes. state being held. And and that's that's a, that's an interesting aspect of it technically where you have mm -hmm. an address on the inside being translated to an address on the outside uh, one for one, but there's no no state on the device that's doing that translation. Yeah. And then I mean, there is NAT66 available on certain platforms too. And I mean, Scott's going to know way more about which platforms probably support MPTV6 versus NAT66. Yeah. Uh, they may call it NAT66, but there's no RFC with that right. name that's yep. defined. But products use that term on their data sheets uh, to say that they do that function. And they probably are using the similar code that they use for V4, just changing it around. And Yeah. They they use the same fix up principles to mm -hmm. to clean up the yeah. the payload to allow things to sort of work properly as it traverses mm -hmm. across their first state, and and just so everyone knows, MPTV six has an RFC, and uh, I don't remember it off the top of my head, but uh, but it is an, an, an technically an experimental RFC, and I know there's some effort to to change that that's going on right now, but. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's super interesting that there is still NAT in, mm -hmm. in IPv6, regardless of the end to end principle. There are use mm -hmm. cases where it makes sense, and there's some corner cases that it makes a lot of sense actually, uh, for 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 when you're trying to um, when you're trying to get around the source destination address selection process problem in, in <laughs> RFC sixty seven twenty four. Well, we'd be remiss also if we didn't mention you know getting getting uh, your your chocolate in the peanut butter with NAT six four, which of course has uh, has quite a use case for it. Um, in, yes. in environments yeah. where you have IPv6 only and you want to communicate
communicate mm-hmm. with IPv4 resources. So it's it wasn't enough that we had NAT 6.6 and NAT 4.4. We've got NAT 6.4 to NAT. But how come we don't have NAT 4.6? So, uh, <laughs> Actually. You can. <laughs> uh, but you can't. Do you can't take the entire v6 address space and munge it inside of a v4 address like you do with DNS 6.4, right? Synthesizing the address. So oftentimes DNS 4.6 is done, but more like a, a static uh, right. mapping and done more like a proxy server. It's done, it's done more like a, a, a part overload configuration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can you can definitely do that and you can do it statically. Yes. That's how it's often done is a static one-to-one mapping. And, and I think I've seen it more commonly done. It, we, we would think of it more like a server load balancer doing, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, mm-hmm. doing it that way versus maybe doing a true like NAT device uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms yeah. of that context. But yeah. It's I, a proxy that has proxy, a, yep. a NAT-like behavior. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. It'll just open a new session for you on whatever address it happens. Yeah, on it's the other terminating side. a TCP session and creating a net new TCP session on the other side. Exactly. Where a NAT doesn't interfere with the TCP session. Exactly. Yep. It's well, paying I mean, attention to it because it's stateful because it has to look at the sequence number, acknowledgement numbers and stuff and TCP source and destination port numbers to to maintain that state. Uh, but it's not interfering. I guess yeah. as intensely as a proxy would. Um, well, what's what's another pro for NAT? I guess I guess one of the other things that everyone I I, I hear over and over and over again as well, it just gives me a simple internal numbering, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't care what the numbering is of anyone else's network. I only care about the numbering for my network, and uh, because of that, I don't have to worry about it. And then I just translate to whatever I need to be doing on the outside world to talk to whoever, whether that's a partner, whether that's my service provider, whether that's my cloud provider. I don't care. I use NAT to be able to communicate in whatever way address wise is, yeah. is that a pro yeah i'm a, I'm a cloud person and i just want to deploy some workloads and i don't really care what an address is and i'm just going to use this thing called 10 space and it seems to work and then where i need public addresses i'll use a a public address space address for my service provider i'll rent it as sure. needed yep and oh i need to connect back to the corporate headquarters on-premises data center now the network engineers are screaming at me because <laughs> i used all 10 space for my uh virtual network in the cloud i, I signed 10.0.0.0 slash 8 there shouldn't be a problem I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well then the good news is that we can do both source and destination nat so uh we can we can uh, nat translate in whatever direction we need to for mm-hmm. for whatever purpose so i, I suppose it's, it's a solvable problem but it's it certainly allows simplicity of, of sort of organizational numbering. Like there's not a bigger collective of trying to work this out versus mm-hmm. to a certain degree, there is that with V6, right? You have to go to your RIR, get your public address space. I mean, once you have your public address space, it's yours, right? Uh, for for mm-hmm. designing and operating as you see fit. But uh, but there is you know, technically a little bit more work that's involved with that. Um, yeah. Kind of a funny story. When I was a kid just starting out in networking this is like 1990 i would build these little networks with linux you know or ibm rs 6000 computers and little uh window or early windows machines with an early tcp ip stack and i knew i could do 123.45.67 and whatever the last number was it worked 
I was building small little networks. And then I tried to connect this thing to the internet and some gray beard at the University of Colorado in Boulder yelled at me like, hey, you can't do that. There's addresses come from places registered. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And then he said, you should read Comer's Guide. And I was like, okay, I will. And, <laughs> but I knew, and I was getting away with it because 123.45 was a class B and whatever the last numbers worked, I didn't enter in a mask. I didn't know what a mask was in 1990. And so, but it worked. I just knew it worked. So the cloud folks are doing the same thing and they just happen to overlap <laughs> with something else. And now some graybeard network engineers like, you can't do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that was loading. That was the old days of like, it was a Windows 3.1 and you had to load like a trumpet, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I used FTP's TCP IP stack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funny, you had to load it as an actual stack in there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the simplification for numbering is, is, is there. I guess the flip side of that is that, you know, NAT can help you to avoid renumbering, but it also might cause you to have to renumber at some point because of mm-hmm. when emerge networks like that's a common problem uh not also f- because the state is kept in a device it can make your routing brittle too right mm-hmm. so by making your routing brittle that means that you have to go through this device in order to be able to talk to that other portion of the network because the state is all there uh to make those translations occur so that your networks can talk to each other one way or the other um so i guess that adds to the complexity i guess that's a con um right the routing brittleness is a con because you can't have asymmetrical flows for for nat translation right that yeah. that's problematic and then you're going to get you trying to troubleshoot it and know that this device is actually doing that versus not doing that could cause some problems too yeah when you're troubleshooting a ipsec land-to-land tunnel across a nat it's right it gets complicated and that adds to the cost of doing business Mm-hmm. takes people's time and then when it breaks at oh dark 30 you know, it, it's down well, so longer because it takes you longer to be like how did i even build this what address is the f- outside and the interesting traffic is what and <laughs> well and i've seen this before uh, this is really common where someone's deploying a net new site and they choose the address space that you're using for like your vpn connections mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh, well, you know, our VPN's coming through and did that VPN address space like match what the end user is using at their home, then things get even worse, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Like there's all sorts of weird state conditions and that causes some of those problems because you think Mm -hmm. you're okay to use that particular address space. Um, Yeah. So that can be problematic in in terms of what what goes on there. Um, But I guess the good news is, is, you know, at some point you're probably going to, you're probably going to have a renumbering event uh, mm-hmm. in, in your life. I guess you could use NAT to avoid that at one point, but then you're going to build up so much technical debt. Eventually, you're going to have to renumber, right? Yeah. So, so the pro and con is well, the pro is maybe you can put this off and wait long enough for, you know, maybe the company that you acquired to move all their resources into your company on your network with your network address space, and then just get rid of the old network space that you're using and then the NAT goes away. If you can never get rid of it, then you just introduce brittleness and a long-term renumbering event's going to be in your future, right? Yeah. We've written about trying to quantify the costs of <laughs> of that administrative burden of having to readdress. Yeah, it's big. It's a lot bigger than people think. I mean, I guess I guess people assume, well, if you have a full-time employee that's working on networking, that they just like to spend their life renumbering. 
and doing renumbering projects. Yeah. But but that's the project nobody wants because it's yeah. thankless. You're not adding any value, and it's just taking time, and it takes. Well, tons you're breaking. Of time. You're 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 breaking everyone's stuff. Like you're everyone everyone's stuff. And none of that can be done during the day. <laughs> so you well, have to work at 2 a.m. <laughs> Do you like giving up your weekend evenings? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that's that's the perfect role for someone who is literally 12 hours away on a time zone basis, right? Or, or eight hours away on a time zone basis and just, just just does time shifting for you in terms of having to do that work. But yeah, I agree. It's not it's not super attractive. Well, what else do we want to mention about sort of NAT? I guess we didn't cover the the first extreme point, which is does NAT just simply IPv4 NAT, that is, uh, just simply make v6 not even a requirement. I think Tom spoke to it from the service provider standpoint that no, that's not the case. But what about for enterprises? Do we think do we think v6 brings something significantly different for enterprises. I think for the customers that we've been talking to in our in our day lives where we actually do this, I think the answer is V6 does solve a lot of problems because so many of them are doing acquisitions. So many of them are burning through their address space for public cloud resources or containers, Kubernetes, et cetera. And their address pools are diminishing very, very quickly at some of the bigger organizations that we're engaged in working with. Mm-hmm. And those folks I'm talking with, they can't solve their problem of how much address space they're handing out with NAT alone, because you still have to NAT translate it to something. So even if they want to reuse the same address space over and over and over again within VPCs, which would slow or stem the tide of of what they're doing within public cloud resources, they still have to NAT it to something. Uh, and they still have to make those resources available in order to connect to them. So, And they have to track all that. Right. And there's, so they're still burning through a ton of address space, even if they're able to conserve a little bit just by hiding behind that resources. So yeah. I think, I think we've seen a lot, a, a great uptick in terms of interest around just the plethora of address space that you get out of V6. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, the, 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 also the just very high number of, of networks that you get to operate that don't have conflicting address space. And therefore you can have things like asymmetric route. You can solve more problems with just pure routing than you can with V6 with yeah. that. Yeah, or with V4 with NAT. Yeah, so. with V6, you would not have NAT. So imagine never having to readdress, ever. Never having to readdress, ever. Unless you, unless you mess up your, your address <laughs> plan. <laughs> then, you, then you need to call Tom <laughs> and get straightened yeah. out. Once Tom straightens you out, you will never, ever, ever have to readdress. And that's kind of nice. Yeah, and then I was thinking two, about putting that guarantee in my book, uh, at, you know, as a footnote, <laughs> asterisk. You will never have to readdress, and if you do, you can call me at home, and I will come to your data center and help you readdress. I, I didn't, I, will, I, I didn't put that in there. I will give you my book royalties back. I'll write you a check for thirty cents. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will buy you uh, a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe Folgers. It's <laughs> uh, so a little uh, Starbucks instant coffee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then not having to readdress, the operational simplicity of of not having to deal with the troubleshooting we talked about. But the, also, there's a performance benefit to V6 for not having to do network address translation because you don't need to back all the traffic through that NAT, through that mm-hmm. funnel, point, you know, point. through that choke point. Uh, you improve performance because you're avoiding one bottleneck that or could multiple. be overloaded and is uh, introduces latency or delay 
jitter or, or multiples of those, because if it's happening on your CPE, you're in your carrier grade network, back in your corporate office, back to the whatever device you have, you could be going through four levels of NAT that are yeah. NAT that you don't control at all. <laughs> and you're backhauled and maybe the NAT is in a different city. Yeah. And so yeah, with IPv6, the traffic could go more direct and not be backhauled. So right, a, right away, you might save 10 to 40 to 80 milliseconds performance right off the bat by not having to backhaul. It can just go direct, as you said, with routing. And then you're not going through a multiples of these NATs. And so you're, you gain the performance benefit of, of not the, the CPU activity at each one of these NATs. Now they're, you know, they're running Silicon. They're very fast, you know, normally, Uh, but you're avoiding those. Uh, You're you're, avoiding any connection loss, packet loss that might exist from an overloaded NAT. Yeah, I just see NAT as like, you know, it's like it's like we all have toll tags and, and on the expressway. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when it's working correctly, everything's just moving at freeway rate. But the reality is is that you don't get to hit the button on on ways and say route me around the the uh, traffic congestion ahead because mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to route off of it because I have to use that toll tag in order to be able to do what I'm doing. I can't mm-hmm. I can't route around a different route to uh, to avoid the whole situation because mm-hmm. I'm not uniquely identifiable, right? So I think that's that's the pro that you get out of that. Yeah. So V6, you might have a slight performance improvement. Yeah. You can off avoiding you can, that. You can off road and avoid all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Flying car right over. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- was there anything else we wanted to cover, you guys? I think I, this is a super common question, and like we cover this on a, on an ongoing basis, just in conversations uh, a lot. So I think it's it's sort of nice to be able to park all this in a, in a show and sort of point people to this instead. <laughs> yeah, I guess with V six, you know, with with NAT, you have this anonymity that gets created, and hackers can hide behind multiple layers of NAT and safely conduct their business and avoid being detected. Maybe with IPv6, you don't have those that translation taking place. And so you could do tracebacks easier or um, or do reputation filtering more mm-hmm. easier. Uh, forensics, telemetry, management, you know, you know the address you're dealing with and troubleshooting with is the real address of either the client or the server. Right. No, I, I would agree with that. But I think we're still, it's still relatively early days in terms of V6, uh, having the address space of V6 help you solve the larger architectural challenges around getting back to a place where, you know, as you mentioned, routing is routing as routing and, and being able to, to have enough address space to number all of the resources in the network, you know, uh, uniquely and, and have them be very tidy behind, you know, prefixes that are laid out in a very organized fashion. And because of the fact that the deployment footprint of V6 isn't isn't you know super huge in the enterprise space, the benefits of that haven't haven't sort of really manifested enough to be able to just have the slam dunk case where you're like, well, this is you know we need to do everything that we can to retire all the technical debt associated with V4 overlapping address space and the use of NAT to solve that to get around it to solve that, and just go to V6. So I, I think. As as we proceed with the V6 deployment in the enterprise space, that the benefit and the you know the advantage and of V6, you know, with the detriment sort of accruing to NAT, and you know, will become ever more clear in in, in the enterprise space. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas today, it's I think it's uh, you know it's definitely a little more of a cloudier picture, and and we definitely well, see it's, them. It's 
it's early. You don't have enough data to know sort of the trajectory about where it's going. And we have a gut feeling about how that's going to play out. Right. But um, yeah, I think the service providers were the early indicator about how this will play out in the long run. Right. In terms of like potential impact. But, you know, when you don't have a greenfield network and you're, you know, you're just trying to make make the best of a, a very sort of disorganized or complicated, you know, brownfield network where you've got a lot of technical debt and a lot of legacy, you know, addressing it's, it's, it's really hard to get there from here. And, and we are getting there, but it's, 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 ta- it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess it's early days to see how many enterprises just punt and go with a NAT 6.6 type thing because it's what they've always done. Yeah. And that's, and that's, we're talking about creating the ultimate brown, dark brown field network. <laughs> <laughs> so as you try to deploy IPv6 at your enterprise, you know, resist that. Yeah, I, I, I think the really valid point is that your end users that you're dealing with are on one protocol. And that's likely v6 because of what the service providers had to do and so it's your choice about how participatory and how much you're going to rely on someone else to get them to you right mm-hmm. and, and i think economically eventually it's going to turn the tide's going to turn to say like we just need to speak to them in the, na- in the native protocol that they're already talking and then eventually that just moves in as more and more resources realize that that's what's happening um so i think you know steady as she goes, it's going to happen regardless, but it's mm-hmm. not going to be an overnight thing. And I think there's going to be some lessons learned by folks who maybe do NAT incorrectly on the V6 side and maybe get some surprises that they weren't expecting. Yeah. And so it's, yeah it's, definitely, it's definitely not either or. You have to use V4 NAT. There's no other way to live day right. to day. Yes. And exactly. you have to deploy IPv6. You have no choice. It's an inevitability. So yeah. You might as well start now. And, and and I think I think the challenge for people is that thought process that we've always talked about, which is IPv4 thinking, bring your IPv4 thinking forward with us in our V6 design when it doesn't necessarily match up with mm-hmm. with with the realities of what you can technically can or can't do. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the challenge for everyone. I guess we leave it at that, right? You yeah. Know, stop stop your V4 thinking. <laughs> Well, unlike V6, we've run out of space for the podcast. You can reach us on the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter uh, at IPv6 Buzz. You can hit up each one of us on Twitter too. Um, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at E. Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite uh, podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. If you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out like Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcasts, uh, plus all the other great technical content over at PacketPushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.